0: why every state has their own regulations in this industry. How did you make that move? What was the thought process behind moving from KPMG to the corporate finance side of the world?
1: Ultimately, the role of CFO is a combination of making sure that the company can see around the corner in all aspects.
0: Gross profit, Trees Wompley Reich, who has the best gross profit.
1: I have found my, my calling in helping growth startups scale you know companies that have raised a substantial amount of money that are that are navigating their business overall capital raised today that treats is about 79 million. and uh, we are proud to be a leader in the industry
0: hello hello Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. We endeavor to unpack their journeys, to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. In today's episode, we are venturing into the unknown and obscure world of cannabis tech. Cannabis, which is more popularly known as marijuana, has a market size of over 33 billion by the end of year 2023 in the USA, and is expected to grow to 67 billion in the next five years. I'm excited to be joined by David Yahn, the CFO of Trees, which is a leading player in the cannabis tech space with over 15% market share. David has an amazing journey so far, and is an expert in SMB SaaS, given his time at leading companies like Trees, Womply, and Reich. Amongst other topics, we'll dive into this journey, explore cannabis tech as an industry, and unpack SMB SaaS with its nuances and metrics. Let's end the wait and listen on to learn, grow, and inspire. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on on board.
1: Thank you, Rohit. Super excited to be here. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Awesome. Why don't we kick it off with a little background on you? So tell us, how did you make your foray into this world of finance and became a CFO? Yeah. um,
1: You know, it's... I, I never... I, I don't think I started out uh, when I was in college, if I go, can go all the way back then. I don't think I started out with the perspective that I would end up in the world of finance. You know, I, I firstly, firstly, I was incredibly interested just at, at, in university studies in economics. And I studied marketing. I dived into marketing. I dived into a little bit of finance, a little bit of accounting, and was sort of just intellectually interested in a lot of different topics and wanted to, I knew I wanted to make some dent in the business world, but was, you know, like many young people was just trying to figure out, you know, exactly how I would impact that. And, um, you know, I went to a state university based in California, um, and I was sort of trying out a couple different internships, some in finance, some in marketing, I um, worked at, had had the great opportunity to work for um, several startup accelerators actually which kind of got me intrigued in the startup world and uh, but you know I wasn't an entrepreneur at the same time so um, you know really I found my way in at, and at the time it was it was sort of early mid2000s there was there was a lot of a lot of hiring that was being done in the accounting side of the world specifically on the public accounting side. Um, you know the big four um, it was it was at, actually at the time it was the big five that just shrank down to the big four just because of of Arthur Anderson and um, you know well what what I found was that you know I, I had seen a lot of people build really great careers coming out of the public accounting world but I didn't you know in, internally, for me, I didn't necessarily feel like a pure accountant, right? And, um, unlike a lot of people that, that had planned their public accounting journey very, on, very early on in their studies, you know, I sort of made the decision quite a bit later, maybe my senior year of college. And, um, uh, you know, after a number of internships, I, I, I sort of thought that I would take a path of ultimately corporate finance. But that the best entry point into that, you know, not coming from an Ivy school where you're typically looking at investment banking type of consulting jobs, but coming from more of a state university. I thought that that uh, public accounting would be a great path to the fact that there was a lot of hiring, as I mentioned, and uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was full in effect at the time, just just coming up and ramping as a result of just so much corporate governance change that was that was going on, I think that part of it and the regulatory side of it was pretty interesting to me. And um, I saw some of that start to take shape in a few of my internships. So, um, you know, went out and interviewed with all of the four large accounting firms, as well as some corporate, um, and ultimately started my career the traditional way at KPMG and audit.
0: All right. Very cool. It's interesting, uh, not many people realize these mega shifts in whether you think about regulations or governance that comes in they really have a huge impact on the job market
1: oh absolutely you know I think the the year that I started, they probably hired a class of i want to say eighty ninety people right in out in the bay area and um you know, there's there's two offices in the Bay Area. I ended up I ended up starting in, in Mountain View, just right at the epicenter of all the tech activity. And uh, you know, but what what actually kind of overshadowed even some of the just the startup activity, the IPOs, um, you know, large public companies, large big box software companies that you typically see. In the bay area was just at the time so many companies were going through transition to starman's oxley transition to to you know higher higher more visible and transparent financial reporting standards they were moving toward you know some of them were a little bit behind the curve and some of them were were standard setters in that sense and then we were also coming out of a a sort of awkward economy just because just because uh you know between between 9-11, the war in Iraq, um, you know, number of number of other things, the dot-com bust, which preceded that a few years earlier, right? Things were start Silicon Valley was kind of still coming back out of everything. And then we get hit with all this, all this governance. But you know, it was very fortuitous for me because they that class, you know, and I'll I'll say this admittedly, like as I mentioned, I didn't start out, I didn't start out my career thinking that. I would be a pure accountant, and that's the that's the sort of model archetype that the Big Four looks for. So you know, when they they went out and they hired a class of like ninety people, and they probably it probably would have been something closer to sixty or sixty five had it not been for all those regulatory changes and just the demands of the clients at the time. Um, so you know, I, I'm a major beneficiary, you know, of of this whole of that whole regulatory wave that that took shape during that time. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I started out my career at such a large um, firm with, with really such high standards for excellence across the board. And, uh, you know, even though accounting is probably a fraction, just a sub fraction of the CFO's job, uh, today as a modern CFO, you know, I still, I still rely a lot upon, you know, just the standards that I've learned there. Not not even from, not from a technical standpoint, although that always helps, but really just from the way I approach my job, the way I, I work with people, the way I collaborate with, with others, um, you know, it's, it says a lot in terms of how I think through my work ethic, how I think about highs and lows, and, uh, you know, it, it was overall a very good experience as just a, just early in my career.
0: Makes sense. Um, can you tell us a little more about your time at uh, KPMG? You were based in uh, the Silicon Valley, right? So were you exposed more to the technology companies or it was a mix of other industries as well? And what kind of really learned uh, you, you learned in that time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it was... It was almost exclusively technology probably 95 percent or so right i think what what um you know as i mentioned i, I when i started out every company was going through the sarbanes and side of things you know it was that while that helped me get the get the job just because of, of the hiring inflection um you know i don't think that was my main interest area my main interest area was really just understanding all the different challenges that companies were going through as they navigate you know if, if you were working with a larger company maybe they were na- navigating their their um, you know revenue recognition transitions compliance standards if you were working with a smaller company maybe they were they had broader ambitions down the line for ipos transactions capital raises that really really forced them to take a hard look at at how they were governing themselves internally how they were building out processes how they were building for scale you know how 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 forward was the cfo uh, thinking at the time, you know, were they thinking one year forward, were they thinking three years forward, were they thinking, you know, right at the moment, just because they had to, you know, what, what, um, you know, what was sort of the perspective that each company was taking. And, uh, you get, you get such a broad mix of clientele in different stages of their, their own company life cycle and stages of their own internal teams. And, uh, you know, overall, overall, uh, you know, as as an early professional, it's something that that you can still reflect on years later, as you think about your own leadership journey, as you think about your own company journey. Um, Just because you see so many different things, you know, one year, you might be you might be in in the middle of a very strong capital market, another year, it might be down, Um, you know, regulations change, you know, I'm, Personally, in a very highly regulated environment today, and it's a it's a very interesting business, right? Um, so overall, you, you you sort of learn the sort of the sort of hard business skills, and then at the same time, you learn a lot of the soft skills because business is ultimately about people. And uh, you know, in the CFO seat, you have to you have to go way behind the numbers, and you have to get down into the operations. You have to get down to the people. So. Um, Learned a lot about building relationships and ultimately, ultimately leadership at the same time.
0: Makes sense. What made you then move from KPMG to the corporate finance side? Um, and especially when you mentioned sort of a you know broad repertoire of companies and clients that you were working with, a lot of interesting people that you get exposed to. And I was sort of in a similar situation on the investment banking side and then moved to corporate. And it took me a while to reset my mind to be able to just focus on one single company 24 by 7, right? And so tell us kind of both how did you make that move? What was the thought process behind moving from KPMG to the corporate finance side of the world? And then did you have to make a similar adjustment that kind of I alluded to right now?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I I think my perspective, if if I go back, you know, a couple of years, well, just just knowing that that corporate finance was ultimately what I wanted to do. You know, I think I sort of mentally prepared myself for that transition uh, years ahead of actually getting into getting into a, a corporate finance or you know sort of financial planning seat. And uh, you know, really, it started with just a desire to broaden my pers- my perspective and my operating experience in a and take finance from a general management standpoint, not a compliance, you know, you can look at it from a compliance standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, which is essentially what coming from the big four is about. But if you ultimately want to impact, influence the strategy of the business and you want to influence the outcomes
0: of the company,
1: then you're going to have to get into the operations. You're going to have to understand the strategy. You're going to have to go down into, into, into the model. You're going to have to go down into how you actually affect change and de- decision making within a company. So I was really looking for a company where I could I could do that, and I didn't want to pick a very early stage startup because that's kind of too much. You're kind of spread a little bit too wide, and you might not go deep enough. And I didn't want to go into a very very large, you know, Fortune 100 either, which is actually the path of a lot of. A lot of Big Four alumni, just because I I didn't want to be boxed into some, into some uh, role where they're exclusively hiring me out of KPMG for my skill set that I learned there, whether it be you know working as a revenue recognition accountant or whether it be working you know in, in treasury or some other uh, some other area, um, you know usually larger companies have multiple 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 facets of the global finance organization so looked for a mid-stage growth company that that was in the ad tech space at the time they are actually my clients so i I kind of knew them i knew the, the cfo's operating style just because i had i had um i had always enjoyed and and sort of in some ways even admired my interactions that i had with him during my time as an auditor and um you know it I, I really saw in him that finance leadership from a general management standpoint, not a not a banking standpoint, not a compliance standpoint, not a pure transaction standpoint but really somebody that covered covered all grounds very well as well and had a big hand in company-wide leadership at the same time. so you know this this person is some somebody that I have in some ways over time tried to model, model my own approach off of at least early on and then you know and then you sort of you sort of take your own take your own style and approach and, and, uh, and navigate that you know as you get further along the journey. but at least early on he was somebody that I really really um, watched very closely behind the scenes. And so you know when, when an opportunity came about where I would have an opportunity where I would be able to provide the company with the guidance that I had, that I had provided them when I had when I had been at KPMG and they had been my client, and at the same time build that finance from a general management standpoint, you know, from reporting to analytics, FPNA, operational type of finance, and really wear a lot of hats and you know did that for a couple of years, and that was and you know, I, I felt like that gave that kind of rounded out my profile. And you know, by the time I had gone through all, all that, I was probably maybe Four or five years into my career, and I and I felt like that that sort of like three and a half years at KPMG plus another you know one two years um, in, a, in a in a corporate setting where I was able to round myself out pretty well. You know, I I I felt very good about the experience that I had gotten there. They, uh, just given that they had gone through capital raises, they had gone through some ups, you know, a lot of ups and a handful of bumps along the road as well. So helping to navigate that.
0: Makes sense. And since that first foray into corporate finance, you have uh, been at companies like Synopsys, Fourscout, Twitter, Reich, Wompley, A good mix of large-scale companies, relatively smaller companies, public companies, private companies. So tell us a little more about how do you, how did you pick and choose, um, or was it more just organically how how kind of those transitions happened. And uh, what was it to work in more of a public company setting versus a private setting?
1: Yeah yeah you know um, as far as picking and choosing and uh, how organic were things you know a little a little bit of a mix of both you know opportunities come your way during your career and um, they're going to present they're going to present ways in which you can put yourself outside of your comfort zone so you know that's that's number one as if we're talking about, a path to ultimately being CFO, um, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone as many times as you can within the first, call it five years of your career, right, is tremendously, is tremendously valuable. Now, you're going to take a little bit of risk in doing so um, because, because you're learning, right? But I think just putting yourself out there, shedding the sort of risk-averse side that side of your the persona that typically comes with a most people in finance, you know, just, just to put a, it's a little bit of a bad stereotype, but there's a little bit of truth to it as well. And, you know, if that, that risk aversion protects companies, but it, I don't know that it's the best decision for your career. So number one, you know, just to reiterate, putting yourself out there, taking take putting yourself outside of your comfort zone, And, uh, you know, multiplying your resume over, you know, get that multiplier effect inside your resume. It's okay if not everything works out exactly as you plan, but you have to learn a lot along the journey. And, you know, I, I, so I thought about it from the standpoint of, you know, CFOs have to navigate. If my ultimate goal at the time was CFO, which, you know, by that time it was, um, then, you know what? What situations do I have to put myself in? What stages of companies do I need to see? What type of transactions do I need to be to, to get myself exposed to? And what type of decision making do I need to 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 um, to expose myself to as well? And you know that really guided um, a lot of the different roles that I had taken. Over time, from whether from mid level through through senior management ranks and the different roles that I had taken, so you know, starting with some of those companies, right? You know, working in a working in a large public company like Synopsys, I had had an opportunity to do do um, a combination of SEC reporting, and we also had an M and A sort of advisory function, and they were highly acquisitive uh, of a company, so so a little bit of exposure to the transactional side as well as the, the reporting side. But, you know, it's a larger company. So as I mentioned, it's, it's a lot of different facets of the finance organization. Um, you sort of, you know, it, come, it comes with the territory. You see the rigor and the discipline of, of really excellent processes. But, um, you know, earlier in your career, you're going to be a little bit removed from a lot of the, some of the, some of the more bigger picture corporate finance type of things. So, um, you know, I, I I went back to a growth company ultimately where I felt like I was most impactful, um, worked on an IPO transaction, had an opportunity to to write an S1. And, you know, I found that a lot of those those early jobs that I took, it was the first time that I was doing something, for instance, you know, in the ad tech company coming out of KPMG it was the first time that I, I had um, Worked in finance from a more general management standpoint than a pure compliance one. Um, you know, when it would, I worked a- at this cr- at this network security company, for Scout, It was the first first IPO transaction that I had directly been able to work on, and I and uh, you know I wrote a good amount of the S one and uh, just just helped the company with its processes and its discipline across across readying for for that initiative. Above and beyond that. Um, you know, when I when I when I went to Twitter, you know, they were just they were just coming out of their IPO. And, you know, most companies, most companies uh, spend a good amount of time preparing for the IPO and getting really mature internally. And, and they were. But at the same time, uh, when there's a multi-billion dollar transaction on the table, you know, the company, companies move as fast towards that as they should, uh, as, as they reasonably can. And so, you know, post the IPO, there's there's still lots of work to be done. Um, was responsible for some of the North America accounting functions and uh, had an opportunity to build on people management and process development as well as as well as just overall leadership. But um, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I I have found my my calling in helping growth startups scale. You know, companies that have raised a substantial amount of money that are that are that are navigating their business and that opportunity that opportunity came for me probably you know sometime in 2014 2015 when um when i when i was put in touch with a cfo who was kind of who was their de facto coo and then ultimate and then Probably later on in the journey, maybe six months into into the journey, he became COO and CFO. But he was running a number of different parts of the organization, essentially everything outside of outside of um, some aspects of product and engineering. So very commercially focused, and you know that 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 sort of profile of a CFO who was also a COO was a big draw to me because a it would give me the opportunity to take on um, the entirety of the finance function and, you know, from fp finance operations, treasury and, and, and traditional controller functions. And, uh, you know, I, I knew it would, I just knew that it would set myself up for a, a path to CFO over time, just because of the wide span, combination of the wide span of ownership and um, the very broad focus that the CFO uh, COO had at the time, so you know the person placed a lot of trust in me. saw saw that that um, you know I was able to execute on a number of things at other companies, you know, without necessarily having gone through it several times before, because I was still relatively early in my in my career, probably mid career, right? But um, but and and took the chance on me, and you know that's that's a lot of part. That's a lot of what you do as a CFO as well. When you, when you're building your team is you, you, you want a certain level of certainty and what the person can bring, but you also take a chance in people and you also make a big investment in developing people. So, you know, I, uh, in addition to the hard skills that I learned there, that, that was another thing that that sort of is, was a very good takeaway from my experience working for the C, this, this person is just, just, a You know, how much trust you can put in people and how much you can and uh, what your role is in making sure that your team succeeds. Because ultimately, in a growing and scaling company, you can't you really can't do this alone. Um, You know, but but um, so when I was put in that in that position, you know, the company was was probably. Want to say like three hundred people at the time, you know. By the time I left, and 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 ultimately at the exit, there were there were probably six hundred, maybe six hundred and fifty people. We had grown. We had been growing at a pretty good clip. It is a it was a SaaS business model. Um, firstly, starting, you know, they they started when I started. They had a very inbound sort of transactional business approach, transactional um, um, high touch funnel, right? And then over time. They migrated into into the enterprise sort of market with much larger customers. So, helping to navigate the company through that transition, um, and unlock different several different vectors of growth paths for the company, as well as build a a finance team that I'm still very proud of, and many are still there today. You know that that supported such a large organization that was growing at the growing at the same time. Um, so, you know. It really gave me the opportunity to to not only build the team but anticipate needs uh, years in advance. Not go way ahead of, ahead of scale, just because you know finance functions tend to be tend to be lean, and you don't want, you don't want to overprocess a company beyond its maturity. But you don't. But you never want to fall behind either. You always want to be at the. You always want to be ahead, but. Um, you actually don't want to pull it too far ahead. And so, you know, navigating that balance was also another sort of great learning from, from my journey uh, at Wright.
0: Very cool. Um, tell us, uh, w- did the Vista transaction happen while you were there or it happened after uh, you moved to Broadway? Yeah, so, so
1: we went, you know, we, we had done a handful of capital, we had done a handful of capital transactions. You know, I had joined after, I had joined after their Series B, uh, we had done some credit and debt rounds as well which which helped us navigate really the, the the cap table very well and the company was the company was growing and it was managing its burn so it was it was a it was uh, it was opportune for us and there was you know we were always viewed sort of as like number number two in the in the space right maybe number three there were there were a handful of I think there was, if I reflect on it, there was one IPO at the time, you know, there were some large capital transactions and uh, there was always a healthy amount of, of uh, private equity interest in, in Reich, um, you know, as well as strategic opportunities. But ultimately, you know, ultimately the company exited to, to Vista Equity Partners. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, the, my next journey after that was with a company called Womply, which which was a, a growth company, but they would they were PE, you know, they they were PE backed by SageView Capital. What was very very unique about about a uh, Womply is is just that they were in some ways they were able to make SMB SaaS businesses work very well, and um, you know just from a from a from an operating model standpoint, uh, you know a lot of a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of software companies sort of shy away from the SMB market, just because the the economics, the unit economics, as well as the total total economics, are very hard to very hard to master. And uh, you know the the reason that is is because churn is typically very high. Um, small businesses, you know. Uh, tend to go out of business out of at a faster clip, and they tend to be they tend to view um, software purchases very transactionally. So they so um, you know the 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 longstanding relationships are not always there, and the transaction pro- and and just at the at the price points, you know, it's easy to to switch. So you know if you if you think about SM traditional SMB or or you know their Churn tends to be higher than average. Cost of customer acquisition tends to be—it's um, either very predictable or it's very unpredictable, and um, you know it can it can take it can take a good amount of finessing to work. But this company here, this company Wampley, um you know they had they had a mission to serve a a really horizontal uh, s- scope of small business owners. You know they're they're. Addressable market is probably over, you know, over, over a million small businesses within the within the U.S. So a very wide TAM and a very but and very wide distribution, but uh, we nailed the economics and that was that was really critical to that company. That's you know I so you know I brought with myself by this time in my in my journey I had worked with high growth SaaS companies that had both spanned. SMB, as well as enterprise, large transactions, right? And um, really everything kind of in between and in the inflection point and the, the sort of transition point, excuse me, you know, as, as you go through from one to the other. But, you know, it's, it's the, the SaaS is like, I've also had the opportunity to see SAS business, the SaaS business models evolve quite a bit. Um, you know, just over my the course of my career. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been quite interesting.
0: We'll certainly touch a lot more upon the SMB SaaS dynamics um, once we talk more about Trees. Uh, but why don't you tell us how the move to Trees happened and uh, uh, maybe introduce Trees to the audience?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so Trees, we are um, the technology platform and backbone of the state legalized cannabis industry, so there, uh, so cannabis is legalized in thirty-nine or forty of the fifty U.S. states, and uh, there are probably, you know, twenty-four or so of those are like recreational markets, and then the remainder are other medicinal or some combination of recreational. And medicinal, and you know, it's it's a really intriguing industry. One, one, firstly, it calls me way back to my roots of just being in a very, very highly regulated industry, but in a different way because because if you have to remember, it's regulated at the state level. Um, the industry has been around for well, the, the state legalized industry has been around for well over a decade. But each state market is very, very different. It's it's dynamic. It's changing. It is. Um, it is interesting at many different levels, you know, uh, intellectually, operationally, and culturally, right? It it's so you know there's an element of fun, and it's also it also requires a a high amount of grit, is what I would say, just because the industry is goes through so much change, and uh, you know my job as CFO, uh, which is my first CFO position, which I've been in the seat for for, uh, just about f- almost five years going on five years now. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's overall a fascinating company. We serve the retailers in the space. There's approximately 8,000 retailers in the U S, uh, ranging from very small businesses to large, large multi-state multi-store retail operators that, um, that span that span across the country, um, some public, mostly privately held uh, businesses, and um, you know. But to your question, as, as how I ended up here, right? Um, you know, I, I I took a call. I, I it was it was you know I was intrigued by the opportunity. I had by now I had been in a very heavy V.P. of finance seat twice, where I had own finance and a little bit more for, um, you know, two times, I, you know, I had both in both cases, I had worked for a CFO who was also operating as the, the COO. Um, today, one of them is a CEO. And, and so that, that gives you a perspective of the type of leader that I had always that I, had, you know, throughout my career that I had always wanted to work for and learn from. And, you know, I just felt like it, I, I really felt like it was my time to to take on the challenge, um, I've been in the position for five years. Had had an opportunity to to do two capital raises for them to see the company through, you know, over five x of growth, execute upon a few transactions, as well as really get into the operations of the company, you know. So th- so that's that's sort of the internal side of it. But but you know, what intrigued me about the opportunity was the emerging industry, the fact that that um, they too have to make small, small business SaaS work that they have had and have, and since has materialized a very major data component, data, data assets that, that are accorded to the company and that, um, you know, their vision was a little bit broader than SaaS You know, we have a combination of SaaS and FinTech, uh, payments in the cannabis industry are, is very complex. It's very highly regulated and, um. You know, but it's also a very meaningful uh, pain point for retailers, and it's a meet, and it's a very meaningful uh, recurring revenue stream for for trees. So so it's so it really it really serves the industry very well across the board. Um, so you know when you combine sort of SaaS fintech data, right? I, I sort of I, I felt like the business model was compelling, the market opportunity. Is compelling. It's incredibly tough to figure out, and I think uh, you know we. I, I'm very proud that we're one of the companies that have that that have um, sort of figured out um, exactly how to how to navigate across this market. But it has incredibly high barriers to entry. I, I think what was what's so unique about the company outside, just outside of the fact that we, we, we serve cannabis, which is still intriguing to some in 2023. Right. (laughs) But, um, is just that when you, when you look at a traditional startup opportunity, like let's say I go back to the first startup that I worked for, which was an ad tech, you know, conversations are always like, okay, well, when's, when is Facebook going to do this? Or when is Google going to do this? Or when is, you know, when is some, very large player going to come do this. Right. I, I think, um, we, we are in cannabis. We don't, we don't really have a whole lot of conversations on a day-to-day basis about, you know, when is Oracle or when is, when is, uh, you know, NetSuite going to come in and build ERP for, for the, the, the cannabis industry. I just, I, you know, I, I don't think that I wouldn't say that they would never, do that right but it's not but um that overhang of that day-to-day overhang of a threat of uh, is just isn't isn't as present and uh you know we're very much a startup industry all the canatech companies in this space which you know interestingly there are some public companies but um you know never nevertheless they are all they are all star i consider them to all be startup and growth companies um, you know, we 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 have hit a certain level of scale, and we have hit a certain level of of maturity maturity that we are continuing to build upon and grow. But but um, you know, we're still very much in the startup market.
0: Very interesting. So if I understood the uh, product accurately, so it's basically a CRM plus a financial management ERP solution plus, of course, the front of the reception fintech checkout solution all packaged in one specifically for the cannabis retailer that's a
1: fair, yeah that's a that's a fair way to articulate articulate it really you know you know we're, we're a point of sale right we so at our we're a point of sale first at, at, at our core you know what we do is we help our operators manage their biz, manage their business so we provide the technology platform that's the point of sale to fintech it's it, you know we have we have some elements of e-commerce what it it is it, it is also an erp light and we have tremendous data assets and uh retail analytics that help retailers operate their business but you know when i say point of sale you know most people think the, the first analogy you'll go to is like okay is it is it like a cash register is it like Is it, is it just like square and, and, you know, it's, it's a lot more complex than that in our industry first, um, just because of the regulations, you know, every piece of inventory has to be tracked and traced through the system. Everything has, every, every record has to be kept, detailed records have to be kept and reported up to the state because it's a state regulated market. And so it's, it's all, it's all, there's a lot more compliance to the point of sale, than a traditional cash register, so you know it's it's much more than that. I, I think that that's the f- sort of first notion I try to dispel when I talk when I tell people what we do is if if they bring up like cash register when you when you talk about point of sale, it's you know it, it's so much more than that. But for simplicity's sake, we can call it we can call it a point of sale, and um, you know it's it's but but it's ultimately the technology backbone behind how a retailer operates their business.
0: Very interesting. Um, Can you give us some flavor in terms of why every state has their own regulations in this industry and there is nothing at the federal level? Is it all just politically inspired or there is something else to it as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, a mix of both. Well, firstly, it's, you know, their cannabis is is state legalized today so we um we are in a position where the federal government still considers cannabis to be a schedule one drug which what that what that means is that it's going to be classified with with the um, well the worst substances that they can be out there you know there's there are proposals in place for that to be reclassified and we hope to see some movement soon but you know we you know, at, at, at Trees, we really operate our business to help help our our retailers across across the regulatory environment, no matter what state it's in. And right now, it's at a state-regulated market simply because it's 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 not federally acknowledged. And so, you know, the each state will take their different approach for how they want um, compliance to happen, how they want. Uh, state, how they want legalized sales of cannabis to happen in their market. And, uh, you know, so, so we help our operators comply with that uh, in a seamless way and uh, help them so that they can focus on their business, Um, highly regulated market overall and unique by state. I think that, you know, there are some states that are more similar to, to to each other than than others, and uh, you know th- that in some ways uh, makes it a little bit easier. There are very good frameworks out there. Like for example, in in California, we have close to forty percent of the overall market share, and that's the largest legal market in in the world. Um, we have significant market share in a number of other states, and uh, we we tend to you know we, as an approach, we tend to go in. And uh, dedicate ourselves to very important states. Um, tend to focus on on TAM dynamics, ideal customer profile, um, the economics of each each the economics of each state, as well as as well as make sure that we have really really good product market fit in the markets that we operate in. And so you know that's all part of the journey that ha- that we have to navigate as a growth startup. Which is to is to figure out the capital investment and the, and the long term investment thesis um, for each for each of the markets. You know, if you kind of if you kind of in some ways go in too early, the 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 economics might be might be difficult. The regulations could be changing. If you go in too late, you miss the opportunity. You're not there for customers that are expanding across markets. So it's a very delicate balance, and uh, and uh, you know. It's a very delicate balance and, you know, a very good case study every day that, that comes across the CFO's desk, as well as our entire executive staff.
0: Very cool. Let's uh, talk about, you said during your time, you have done a couple of funding rounds. I would imagine it has gotten easier over time for the company to land funding rounds. It, it perhaps wasn't as easy at the very starting and you know to be able to raise like a seed or a Series A because the industry itself might not be fully formed, right? And so maybe tell us if you have any you know anecdotes from what you have learned about the company in terms of how were the prior or the earlier rounds, and then how kind of you know easier or harder or different it ended up um, in the two rounds that that you have led for the company.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um- it's a great question when, if I, if I um, start back to when, when I started, well, the company had already completed its Series A long before I joined, um, but, you know, at, at that, you know, from, from, from the perspective of, of my founder at the time, right, who's our CEO, um, you know, early, early on in the industry, there's, there, there was a, there are VCs and, uh, and investors that are specifically focused on the investment thesis the long term investment thesis of the can- of cannabis and you know they see this as a long term uh, secular trend that extends beyond the US but um, but you know with the with the US setting the standard and really re- really it started with it starts with that with that group and this this invest and these are smaller to mid-size funds right that are making that are making a bet on the industry. And you know, at the time that I started, well, we weren't raising capital right away when I started. It was a little bit a little bit further down the journey. But at the time that I started, there weren't many traditional in- investors that had a view on the space just yet. Many of them were still sort of just learning the market. And I think that I think that uh you know there's a there were a there was a lot of inbound interest from the standpoint of Of just pure research like like what do you guys do what's the market about what's the overall opportunity and i think but i it's very clear that you know in 2019 2020 that um you know traditional investors were very much in the wait and see type of type of mode as well as and, and and just just sniffing things out um and then you know i think if you if we move if we move into 2020, 2021, you know, there's starting to be some real interest and real diligence that's done, that's done in the space. And at the same time, you know, I, I might just step back and mention the stigma of the industry, which you know, I, I think has an unwarranted reputation, but but uh, the stigma of the industry just from the general population, um, even in a five-year time span. Has you know, anecdotally, has gone down sequentially. Gosh, I want to say at least at least thirty to fifty percent year over year, right? And and you know that's anecdotal, but but and, and maybe some of it is just because I'm 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 very immersed in the industry today. But um, you know, I view I view that as a very major positive trend um, that that will overall that that will you know overall guide the how. How the U.S. thinks about about uh, about cannabis? And uh, you know, we're we're still somewhat away from from federal 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 legalization. That's not regulated at the state level, but you know, I see that as a positive trend. And you see that in the investor sentiment as well, right? Um, I think that there are a lot of investors that really want to make a bet in the industry, but just but don't know exactly how to articulate the opportunity or how to think about it in in absence of a federally um, a, a, of, of a federal landscape right And so that's part of that's part of the job as CFO is to, is to articulate the opportunity um, r- 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 articulate the opportunity articulate the risk art- articulate the growth the growth path above and beyond just the traditional, Here's what our SaaS economics looks like. Here's our, here, you know, here's our financial, here's our, here's our data room. And, but, but, you know, the, the, the long-term thesis is, is really important to, to highlighting that, but, you know, ultimately, um, our Canatech companies took a handful of paths with their financing. And, um, you know, there are some that primarily predominantly stayed within the investor network that, that they know, which is, which is, which is, a uh, investors that that exclusively focus on this industry a b um, you know sort of uh coinciding with 2021 2022 spACs were a big thing so you you we did see some companies that and and remember i said all these are these are still growth startups but um you know uh, quite a few companies took took a spac path which which was a path to liquidity and a path to capital um, it unlocked some MA opportunities for them because of the capital and the transaction. But, but um, you know, I, I don't, I think that there was, I, I do feel that there was a rush and I don't mean this just for our industry. I mean, this in general, there was a rush to for many companies to be, to be public. And, and um, you know, when you're below a certain scale, you don't want to do that just to do that. And I don't think it's not one of those things that you just check the box to check the box. That's, that um that would possibly be equivalent to getting married to get married you know right i think you you just sort of have to find the right person you have to find the you have to find the it has to be at the right time in your life right um and and so so there's the spax and then and then uh you know for for a very a very select group of companies, including Trees, we were able to attract investment from traditional investment investors that really that were really focused on vertical SaaS, uh, combination of vertical SaaS fintech opportunities or traditional software, and they really saw a long term opportunity in what we were doing. They um they've been following the sector for you know probably close to a decade or so, and were was just waiting for you know who are the winners are going to be when is the risk level um tolerable for them to make that first investment where where do they see the longer term secular trends going and you know but that's that's all the macro stuff it ultimately comes down to which company are you investing in and and that and that's still that's still ultimately comes down to the fundamentals of the company and what and what the company's track record has been and, and you know we we are are very fortunate to have built a great SaaS business um, again, with data assets and, and and elements of fintech that have that have driven our growth over the past at the time th- three and a half years that have led to led to our Series C investment. So you know, overall overall capital raised to date at Trees is about seventy nine million, and uh, we've been we we are proud to be a leader in the industry.
0: Very well, cool. I love the kind of the secular trends in terms of. Regulatory industry, closest to money product, right? You're a POS system, so closest to money, and you kind of really uh, enable the transaction, as well as uh, given the structural um, kind of formulation of the industry, it it kind of automatically leads to very low competition for someone like Trees. So uh, super awesome. I would like to play a quick game with you um, where... Will you have to choose which one of Trees, Womply, and Reich has the best metric? I'm going to give you five different metrics, and you have to choose which company has the best of that metric.
1: The best metric, as in who had the best number or who? Who has the
0: best number? Who has the best number on that metric? Okay. So gross profit, Trees, Womply, Reich. Who has the best gross profit?
1: Um, that would be Reich.
0: Okay, CAC payback.
1: CAC payback. Uh, that's that's going to be treats. Okay, we pay back incredibly uh, ch- quickly. Um, uh, combination. It, it's it's a it's the duality of of our SaaS and fintech that that pays
0: yeah. back. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, churn.
1: Churn. Um, Reich.
0: Okay. Um, average revenue per customer.
1: Average revenue per customer. That's going to be. That's going to be trees. We have a lot of uniformity in our in our ICP, and and we, we it's in our our average revenue per customer is very predictable
0: and high as well.
1: Yeah, at, at Reich, I think you know we have we have a lot of SMB, and then we have some enterprise. We had uh, a healthy mix of enterprise as well, so it's more of a it's more of a wide distribution uh, of deals. So it's you, you know the average is less is less precise.
0: Sure, LTV to CAC.
1: LTV to CAC is going to be trees.
0: All right. So now I'm 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 curious. You said uh, Reich for gross profit as well as churn. I would have imagined for someone like Trees in such kind of a you know structural advantaged market, the churn would be quite low. Like like really like almost closer to the best in class enterprise churn. Right. So can you demystify that for me? In terms of why would you say that churn is better at Reich versus Trees?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we well. So at, at Trees, we still deal with um, a lot of startup, uh, small business operators. Um, we you know because we sell to retail, and uh, you know many many of the operators are new in the business, and sometimes sometimes unfortunately it just doesn't the, the actual business doesn't work out for them, and then and then there's there's other churn reasons as well, but that's going to be, that's going to stand out. It's just, it's just uh, the small business dynamic of it. Um, of course we do have a SMB um, or transactional element of Reich as well, but those are still within the, those are still largely within larger companies because it's a project management it's a work it's a work management work collaboration system so even if it's a even if you look at the smaller end of the deals they're still going to be born from larger companies it might be like an engineering team or a marketing team that is using the product with but it could be within a large a very large organization that has land and expand so you know there's there's different churn dynamics at with with that type of profile as well but um you know uh Small businesses, you know, if if you think think about just a, just structurally they, and um, and just their life cycle, there there is a predictable clip of of when they go out of business, and, and that's that's just part of the environment that we operate in.
0: All right, I think all that sounds really good, David. Why don't we uh, move on and talk a little about the modern CFO? over time, you must have seen a lot of different CFOs and the role uh, has certainly evolved um, as well. What has been your experience in terms of the evolution of the role of the CFO? And how do you think about the role of the modern CFO right now? Uh,
1: Great question. I think, um, you know,
0: by the time I started
1: my career, I feel like most CFOs were strategic CFOs already, right? Um, You know, other than the fact that they got hit, they all got hit with massive compliance stuff of Sarmaine's Oxley in the in the early to mid 2000s. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, if, if you just, whether you read articles or if you talk to, to um, you know, a 30, 30 year, 40 year CFO veteran, you know, there's a lot of talk about the transition from like the compliance focused accounting CFO who traditionally came out of the, Straight from the controller's office, right to one that's focused on, on on sort of a forward-looking view. You know, I I like to say that by the time I started my career, most were already along that continuum of making either either they they were always forward, they were ready forward-thinking, or they were in the process of their finance functions were in the process of, of making that that sort of transition. Right. Um, so you know, I think that I think that that's very much table stakes. You know, a lot of people I think would answer just that. Hey, you need to be, you know, a, a modern CFO has to be forward thinking. They have to be, they have to be a good partner to the business in addition to just the the sort of compliance and reporting responsibilities. But I, I I think, but you know, I think that both are incredibly table stakes. So you know, I would like to elevate the definition of. Of the modern CFO to really being the nexus point between the company's strategy, its capital investment, as well as as operations, and uh, you know I'll add an, another element here, which is which is people. You you have to be, um, you know in my in my current role I also oversee people as well as um, some elements of biz ops. and you know, the the people element of it. It is something that I don't think a lot of people would necessarily think connects well to the CFO office. But I think, I, I you know, I personally think that, at least for me, I think it's really important. Um, you know, in addition to the numbers, in addition to everything else that a, that a traditional CFO normally deals with, um, number one, it's going to be, it's in, in almost every company, it's going to be your number one investment. In, in, from a from a capital standpoint, from a time standpoint, within the organization. So, you know, making sure you have the right level of talent, making sure you have you 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 make the right level of investment in your in the employee base, and that you're growing that talent um, is is very very important. But you know, ultimately, the role of CFO is a combination of making sure that the company can see around the corner in all aspects. That's that's that to me stands out as the role of CFO. You should the company should never be surprised with things that are happening. You should always you should always help the rest of the executive staff and your CEO and your board see around the corner for what risks are coming and how you might navigate against that and how that's ultimately going to impact our ability to execute on Either the, the, the operating plan or the company's longer-term strategy. You you want to, you want to be able to see well, well ahead of the curve. You have to sort of be the most mature person in the room. You're you know you're not going to be the most creative, you know, product leader. That that that's a that's a different archetype. You're not going to be the visionary of the company, but you have to help the the company see ahead of the corner. Whether that's twelve months, whether that's eighteen months. 24 months, or whether that's just around the corner on a short-term project plan, whatever, whatever that might be, um, your job is to help, help the company navigate that and mitigate risk without, without, without reflexively diminishing the opportunity because I, and, and that's a delicate balance because you, you know, it's one thing to see around the corner and say like, here at the, here are the, 75 things that could go wrong, but that's not your job either, right? I, I think that uh, that that's that's being a naysayer. So you, you have to preserve the opportunity that is inherent in the CEO's vision and manage that within a certain level of risk and help the company develop the right goalposts for operationally and then track to it from, from a metric standpoint and, and and make sure that the company is adequately prepared for it from a maturity process as well as discipline standpoint, and that that's old, and, and you have to navigate that all within within likely some very tight resources, just because we are a growth company and we are investor backed, right? So so it's the sort that sort of delicate dance that I think is 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 a skill set of a modern CFO and uh, which which is ultimately you have to capture the opportunity that's why the company was founded right and and uh, that's why investors have placed a bet in this company um, you know when they're and every startup has a number of unknowns every startup investment opportunity has a healthy amount of risk inherent in it but so so you have to help preserve that preserve that opportunity and accelerate it as well without Blindly throwing money at it, and without uh, reflexively diminishing the opportunity, because I think that you know, if you if you if you don't hit the right balance, then those two are going to happen. You're either going to waste capital, and once once the capital is gone, it doesn't come back, right? Um, and or or you're going to to uh, reduce the scale of the opportunity, and that's that's not the job either.
0: I love that it's uh, almost being the sherpa um, navigating the company to reach its full potential. Makes a ton of sense. Um, tell us how, how has the integration of advanced technology uh, and data analytics transformed the finance function in your experience?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's critical. You you really you know shifting to internal finance operations, right? Um, you you really have to build the 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 finance function and you know i I think of it sort of as a pyramid and i and when i say pyramid i don't mean a hierarchical pyramid because because you know we're we're a flatter organization and 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 i I tend to run things you know without multiple multiple layers although although we do have layers of management Um, but you know i think of it as a pyramid in that you, at the at the very bottom later, you have to have the operations. You have to have the finance operations. If you don't have that, you're not going to have the accounting. If you don't have the accounting, you're not going to have you're not going to have data integrity. And if you don't have data integrity, you're not going to have the financial. You're not going to be able to do financial planning. And if you don't have the financial plan, and then above the financial planning is analytics and insights. So you really have to. So you really have to create a team and navigate systems and data that can sort of that can sort of compartmentalize that all in, um, all within th- that, that meets the sort of maturity of your business and also call it the current maturity. Plus give it, give it a, give it a, a one year outlook. If you're, if you're going to be doing something like an IPO, you're probably going to have to look past one year, but you know, if you're, if you're not at that scale yet, I think, um, current state plus one year is all, and being one year advanced of where, where, you know, the median company would fall in your stage is probably a reasonable benchmark. That way you're not expending too much capital and, and getting ahead of your skis, but that you're never, you're, you're always in a position where the finance function can lead from the front. And that's really, that's really what it's about. Because if you, if you find yourself just at the average or Behind average, then you're going to want to move. You're going to want to make that investment and move along the continuum because that's that's a finance function that cannot lead from the front. That's a finance function that will be giving you information late. They might have one element of the company of, of the finance function nailed, like they might have the accounting nailed, but they don't have the planning, or that they have the planning, but it's not rooted in in, in great actuals, or that they have financial planning that is. That is a you know very gap based, but it might not have it might not have the deep analytics that's necessary to guide the company through, through um, the, the sorts of things that that companies go through when 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 they when they advance their business model or change it or go through transitions, um, so it, which which many startups often have to encounter whether they acknowledge it or not, right? So. So um, really, really it comes down to data, but it's not about raw data. It's, all, it's about insights. So you have, to, you have to start with what insights you need to run the business one year forward or a little bit more, right depending again, depending on your scale, and work backwards into what systems, what processes, what, and, and what team structure would best help you um, get to that state and and you know when you when you're armed with that level of information you're going to um, along with you know good business judgment you're going to be in a position where you can help the company see around the corner where you can help them help them identify opportunities where you can help them mitigate unnecessary risk not all risk but unnecessary risk relative to the business strategy um and you know if i if i if i um, you know if i break it down into several components you know it firstly is the team it's not it's not even the systems it's not even the reporting systems and the the ERps and and all that stuff i think that you know I, I've gone through dozens of, of system transitions over over the course of my career and and uh, you know i i i'd like to say I probably have like a Eighty percent success rate. I, you know, some systems are, are over oversold, but I really think that it starts it starts with the team that you have, and that the team that you can build and grow um, over time. Uh, you know, a really solid FP. This goes without saying, but I mean, a really solid FP&A and accounting and, and accounting personnel. You know, if you if you have those two functions nailed, you're you're probably. I want to say you you know you're, you're probably 70 percent of the way there and then from there it's like it's your systems it's your processes it's it's what it's how you choose to architect those systems as well um, i think it is very important i think that a lot of a lot of finance professionals sort of jump to the the the, the reflex of answer is we need systems to do all this stuff. Well, yes, you do. You absolutely do. But have you have you dived deep to understand the problem, right? That that you're trying to solve? Or is the reflexive answer that you know some magical software solution is going to unbox and 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 solve your FPNA or your accounting close or your, your payroll problem or your HRIS problem? Because because I, I think if you if you reflexively jump to that. You're probably going to get it wrong whether it's from a strategy level or whether it's from just just basic day-to-day operations and so you know i i actually you know when i go in on when i make an investment in systems i go in hard and heavy but leading up to that point i i I forced the manual process for just a little bit longer before i make and then once i once i make that investment go in go in go all in but forced to process the manual process long enough so that the real, uh, the real gaps and the real problems are really, really well understood, and you know it can be, and that applies to everything that you're solving, whether whether it's whether it's the company-wide ERP or whether it's just a sub-module for, you know, pick a topic, travel and expense, or like like uh, accounts payable or, or, or revenue recognition, right? Well, well revenue recognition is pretty important, right? but But, but, you know, pick, pick, pick a system, whether it's an, the entire, everything under the sun that that's sort of your entire finance stack, right? And how it connects all the way down to the, these, these sub modules, make sure, you know, I, I think that CFOs are really well served if they, if they, if they force that conversation within the organization of what, problem they're really trying to solve um, to make sure that that systems and infrastructure uh, actually do support the business and it's beyond the you know it goes beyond the PowerPoint business case.
0: I think your point on people preceding the systems is uh, is quite interesting. Um, tell us then as a leader how do you foster a culture of innovation and accountability within your team?
1: Yeah yeah um, this ultimately you you want to hire great people who who are motivated to to solve problems but i think that you know i i personally try to make a big investment in every person in my in in my team and make sure that you know direct reports also do the same with theirs on um, in terms of developing their career as well as you know above and beyond managing the day-to-day, you, um, you, you really want to help them from, especially those earlier in their career, from a learning standpoint. And, you know, by learning, I don't just mean that you go out and send them to a bunch of different trainings and, and make them read a bunch of books like they were still in school. Although although you can support, you know, it's, it, you can support a healthy amount of that as well, but really, really show them how you solve problems. Ask them questions, ter- um, you know, force them to think through the hard parts of their job, how they can make how they can make their job better, how they can make their job easier, and uh, make them think back, make them reconcile decisions that go back to the companies, the companies, um, you know, overall business objectives. I think I think it's pretty easy for for um, a lot of people in traditional corporate or GA functions. You know, whether it's Finance, accounting, you know, HR, IT type type of functions too, to think within the scope of of what they're doing. But ultimately, you have to be you have to be a good business partner to the rest of the organization. You have to be able to influence them in a forward way, and uh, to do that, you have to have a very good understanding of the business. So, so every decision, you know, try to try to make people think back to to how how their decision reconciles to not just the process problem that they're trying to solve at the moment, but the, but the larger business, right. Um, How does their decision impact customers? How does it impact employees? How does it impact execution? Does it, um, you know, how does it impact risk or growth? Right. Uh, Think through all those, all those different things. And, you know, over time, I think if you find that you make that investment, you're going to have a team that, that, uh, that makes pretty good decisions, and probably tells you a lot of things that you should be seeing yourself. Um, so, so there'll there'll be some natural meeting at the minds, and and you'll sort of, and everybody will sort of complement each other um, in that way.
0: Makes sense. Now, let's move to a hypothetical. Um, let's assume that uh, today is my first day as a CFO at this company. What would be your advice to me on my first hundred days plan?
1: My advice to a CFO on a first hundred-day plan, you know. Firstly, um, you know I I I tend to not go around telling people telling people that I'm brand new, even though it's obvious, right? If you're in your first hundred days at any company, most people will, will will know. But I think that you know I I, I think you want to you want to again, it's a balance, but. You you want to put yourself in a in an advisory position to the rest of leadership as, as quickly as you can. You know, and I, I don't mean I don't mean that that you rush to, to things and that you don't you know you don't take the time to understand something and that you just kind of go in and, and start telling people what to do. But it's really it's really, really important that firstly, that hundred days you 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 should probably scale that down to to sixty. I, that, that, that's my advice. Um, but, it, but I mean, mechanically, what do I do? I, uh, you know, a, aside from meeting people and talking to people and understand, getting to understand the business and so on and so forth, I, you know, I will go in and, you know, it's, it's like my role of 10. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll explain what that, what that means. Go, go pick 10 sales contracts, pick 10 offer letters, go pick 10 T and E, expense reports go pick 10 10 performance reviews go pick 10 some 10 of anything out there that might be important and, and just just read it, it it's not going to take you a hundred days to do that it'll take you about it'll take you about three hours so it should be something that you can do in, in your first week and that'll really give you a flavor of you know hey you know like does the company overspend? Does the company have a lot of weird deals on the, on the sales side? Do, you know, does, do we have the right talent? Do we have the right, um, do we have the right controls? Have we made the right decisions in the past? Where have we missed? Right. You, you, I, I I think that's a very quick first, first five hour thing (laughs) of your job that you can do above and beyond. Of course, you know, I'm trying to. Trying to ex- explain this in a way that, that gets beyond the obvious, like like sit down with your colleagues and and <laughs> and understand what they do, because of course you're going to do that. And that 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 stuff's table stakes, right? I think um, you you want to understand as quickly as you can what you can do to help the company see around the corner, and that's going to be different for different companies. But your job is to unpack that because when you interviewed for a role if you're interviewing for a cfo role you have to think in some ways like an investor because you well you're making an investment in yourself for 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 you know hopefully in an indefinite period of time to to put this path, this company on the path to success so while you're not putting in financial capital into the company you're putting in personal capital the same could be said about every 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 other employee of the company, but as CFO, you're going to have access to a level of diligence to, to join a company as, as an investor would. So, you know, if if you've probably already gone through that diligence process by the time you've signed that offer letter, and if not, you should have. Um, So that, that's what I think is really important was one, one to that you made an investment in this company. OK, not a financial one, but you've made an investment in this company. How how can you and, and you know, that's based on it on certain fundamentals. It's based on a certain strategy. It's based on a certain vision. How can you help the company unblock that as fast as you can? And, uh, you know, so you want to understand, you know, in your first 100 days, you're going to want to understand, you know, what paths you can do to unlock growth you know, are there any, are there any major governance or compliance things that you need to get ahead of? Because if there are, and uh, if you if there are, and you don't get those cleared out of the way, then that's going to, that's going to block any opportunities that the business had. That's going to, that's going to block upside. So you want to, you want to make sure that you're checking, checking those boxes. You want to build great relationships with P, with your executive colleagues and people, um, you know, throughout the ranks of the company, Inside and outside of finance, because you need to hear things. You need to hear things, um, not so that you can be nosy, but so that you can get ahead of the problems and so you can solve them in the strategy. You need to figure out what's what are big problems and what are small problems, because for sure there will be there will be issues. But your job is your job is to sort of prioritize and stack rank which ones you're going to address and how you're going to build that roadmap and have that communicated. Well ahead of the first hundred days, with a certain level of precision, you know. So, you know, to me, and to me, I like to make it the first sixty, just so that I can have a very clear impact. I, f- I sort of feel like if the impact isn't felt, it isn't felt until, you know, like month four, month five. Then, then, um, you know, you sort of, you sort of might lose a little bit of ground. Uh, don't make quick decisions, but. Get but you own getting yourself ramped as fast as possible, and your ramp period should be shorter than longer, especially given the level of diligence that you should have done prior to taking the job.
0: I love your rule of 10 and thinking like an investor um, before joining the company. I'm curious though, what kind of diligence is acceptable before joining as a CFO?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think, I think your typical data room, right? Uh, typical data room is is probably acceptable. You're going to have gone through interviews with board members. You're going to have to gone through interviews with with, of course, the CEO and other executive staff. So I think that you, your ability to probe and ask ask questions is is critical. And and you know some of that is learned over time, um, but really, I think you really just want to understand uh, where you can help and, you know, what problems are solvable, what problems are not solvable and approximately over what time period and with what capital investment, right? But, um, you know, in terms of actual, like, what you should be looking at, I mean, you should be looking at, should be looking at financials, you should be looking at Um, one level beneath that is just the company's execution plan, how they've been meeting their internal goals, like their, like internal OKRs or, or MBOs, um, execution priorities, understanding, you know, where, where the company's missed before, where, where did, where they've tended to succeed. Um, you know, that, that type of thing, making sure that there's, and then of course there's also there's always the basics, like making sure that, that, uh there's no major outstanding legal matters that 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 type of thing right
0: awesome uh what would be your advice for young professionals who want to be a cfo one day um
1: you know a lot of i I think that i would i don't think there's i don't think there's necessarily one or two or even three paths i think that the role is dynamic enough where cfos can come from a number of different backgrounds and, and uh and early career paths. You know, I, I outlined what my path was earlier in the call. I certainly by no means think that it's the only path. I think that, um, I think that there are many great paths, more than ever, to to the CFO seat today. And I think that's I, I think that's a good thing because the 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 role can be as wide and as deep as it needs to be within the within the organization. And that's and that's going to come with a lot of different skill sets. I would, I, the only thing I would say is to make sure to focus, to, to um, go beyond the numbers. But I, but as I mentioned, I think that's, I I really think that that's table stakes today, right? Um, I would say that go beyond the numbers, but make sure you have that solid grounding in the fundamentals, whether it's, you know you know, corporate finance, planning, Um, you know, corporate governance accounting, you don't, you don't, you, you can always hire great people to support you, but you know, but, but you have to have a certain baseline of fundamentals that, and you can always rely upon, Um, and, um, you know, try, try to, try to get yourself focused on the company's strategy and how it operationally meets its numbers as well as you can you know it's not just knowing the numbers and what they are but how does the how does your organization go about meeting its numbers right Um, top line how does it meet its opex plan how does it meet you know how does it think about investments how does it think about m a you want to really understand how it executes what how it executes well in all those key areas
0: all right makes a ton of sense Um, I think we are uh, up on the time, so I would love to move to a lightning round. Um, That should be quite fun. Um, I'm just going to ask you some quick questions, and all I want from you are immediate responses. Sure. All right, let's get this rolling. Uh, Let's start with something simple, Uh, sweet or savory? Savory. Books or podcasts? Books. Sorry. (laughs) No worries. Thinker or doer? doer introvert or extrovert introvert scotch or whiskey neither oh but wine. what's your gl- t- wine, pleasure
1: coffee. wine coffee. Coffee. all
0: right the,
1: the, my uh, if it has to be alcohol wine but uh really coffee is my my, my savory
0: we'll go with coffee <laughs> um <laughs> how does someone impress you authenticity very cool um, if not a CFO, what would you be?
1: Um, I would be, um, well, I, I mentioned early on, I'd probably be, probably have gone down some strategic marketing path.
0: All right. Um, if you can be CFO of any company for a day, which company would you choose and why? The one I'm at
1: now, uh, and I don't mean that in a cliche way, but I but the reason why is because it's such an it, you know, it's such a changing market that there's something that intrigues me every
0: day. Yeah. So um, the next one, if you could teleport yourself right now, where would you go and why?
1: Yeah. Um, well, if it's a time I would go, I would probably go back to when my parents were born. I would just, I, I you know, I just over the course of my life, I've had many great conversations of just just uh, the evolution of the decades. And I just, I would love to see what they, what journey they went through in their time period um, to get to where they are today.
0: Uh, number one item on your bucket list right now.
1: Number one item on my bucket list. I would love to take a month and drive across the country and visit each state along the way.
0: All right. If you could uninvent something, what would it be?
1: My phone because I can never keep up with all the people calling <laughs> me.
0: Okay. Who is your role model, personally or professionally? Could be any.
1: It's always been my father.
0: Okay. Now, one thing that can make you 10 times more productive?
1: 10 times more productive? Um, well, uh, chat GPT.
0: <laughs> all right. The last one, uh, describe yourself in three words.
1: Curious, determined, and a builder.
0: All right. Super awesome. Uh, David, this has been an amazing show. Thank you so much for taking all this time and sharing your journey and your thoughts. Um, I think uh, this is almost like a masterclass on the um, Canatech side of the house. So thank you so much for for all your... uh, Uh, all your views. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rohit.
0: It's been a pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or our website, www.strategyoffinance.com. Your comments will make us better. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and share the word in your network so other people in the finance community can also benefit. Be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Rohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.